there's a lot of research out there on this right now and you know I can totally understand when people uh, come to me and you know say they're, they're pretty confused about what the literature says around uh, vitamin D and athletic performance. Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bugs. Welcome back or welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I'm Mark Bubbs, performance nutritionist by trade and training, and we are into season number seven. We've got some tremendous, tremendous guests lined up for this year, so really excited to be able to connect you with more expert coaches, scientists, and practitioners working on the front lines of performance. For all our subscribers and regular listeners, really big thank you as we are quickly approaching 1 million downloads, which tremendous achievement, couldn't have done it without you guys. Really appreciate the support and you sharing with colleagues, athletes, and friends. Last year, we had a bunch of new listeners from around the world, South Africa, India, Brazil, Philippines, China. So on that note, I thought we'd kick off 2023 with some highlights of some of the previous seasons on areas that are important and topical now in January. In this episode, you'll hear from Dr. Daniel Owens, who will talk about vitamin D. What areas does it really impact when it comes to athlete performance? How do we interpret lab testing and some considerations around dosing? Next, you'll hear from Jozo Gurgitz. It's January, it's dark, cold, and most of us are leaning a little more heavily on caffeine. And so Jozo will walk us through the effects of caffeine specific to resistance training how it impacts muscular strength, endurance, and power, dosing, and of course, other key factors to consider. And lastly, you'll hear from Dr. Eric Trexler, PhD, and his research on assessing fat mass in football players over the course of a full season, as we get to the end of the collegiate NFL seasons here, and his use of the Fat-Free Mass Index as a tool for guiding your athlete plan. Before we get started, a quick shout out to athletepperformancenutrition.com, who are sponsoring today's show. A holistic view of athlete health and performance is essential for achieving success at the highest level. If you want to increase the breadth of your performance nutrition knowledge and make a bigger impact with your athletes, you'll want to grab a seat in the updated Performance Nutrition Foundation's online course 2.0 starting this February. Level up your knowledge on sleep, the athlete gut, nutrigenomics, fueling for team sports, endurance, weight making and physique athletes, the latest on recovery and immune nutrition, most importantly, mindset and how to connect with your athlete so you can make that difference. Learn from experts you've listened to here on the Performance Nutrition Podcast and join the monthly mentoring sessions to ask questions and connect with like-minded practitioners and experts. Head over to athleteperformancenutrition.com forward slash courses. Use the promo code PN2023 to save 50% off the cost of the course. That's athleteperformancenutrition.com forward slash courses. Use the promo code PN2023 to save 50% off and join us this February for the 12-week intensive course. Awesome. Let's get things rolling for season seven. Enjoy. Let's kick things off here with vitamin D. You know, in the last decade, the research on vitamin D and athletic performance has definitely exploded. Um, Can you maybe give listeners a little historical perspective here and talk about you know some of the advancements in technologies that's really influenced some of this understanding of what vitamin d really does in the body yeah for sure and you know you're exactly right that 
the past the past decade decade or so has just seen this this real boom in in research that's that's been taking place in this uh, you know focused on vitamin D. Um, really, we we can look back to the early 1920s for I guess where where this research interest in vitamin D started. Um, vitamin D was discovered by a quite an interesting character really in in nutritional biochemistry. Uh, a guy called Elmer McCollum, and he was really interested in, in in answering the question: How many dietary essentials are there, and um, what are they? So he was just trying to figure out what is it in the diet that we really need, you know, that we cannot synthesize ourselves. Mm-hmm. So you know, one of the first guys looking into essentially what vitamins really are. Um, he was working at the time on a, a experimental rickets, um, which is a bone bone disease. Uh, results in abnormal bone mineral mineralization. So you've probably seen kids with uh, bowed legs, um, which is a characteristic uh, phenotype of, of rickets. And what McCollum was doing uh, with with these animals that had experimentally induced rickets, he was looking. I mean, he tried over three hundred different diets to see, um, you wow. know, what diet and what it was in specific foods that that could prevent this this disease. Um, and he, and he pretty much figured out what vitamin D was by feeding cod liver oil that had been heated and aerated. Um, so it destroyed all the vitamin A in that. Uh, he figured out that it could no longer cure night blindness, which is a, a consequence of vitamin A deficiency, but it did cure rickets. So um, at that point, he, 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 uh, he named it with the next available letter in the alphabet. <laughs> so they already had A, B, and C, so he called it vitamin D. And... Uh, Really, after that, you know, a generation of kids grew up uh, being supplemented with with cod liver oil, and you know, the rickets epidemic that had gone before it was was virtually eradicated. So, I mean, since then, and since the identification of vitamin D, that's I guess when there was you know a steady increase in the interest in vitamin D. Now, we I guess if we kind of fast forward a little bit to where we are today, yep. we know we know so much more about what vitamin D is and. Um, what it does in the body, and and, I, and for me, there are I guess the two real interesting facts about vitamin D is that it, it it's not really like a normal vitamin. It's it's much more similar to a steroid hormone, and it acts in a similar way in the body. Um, and also the the predominant way by which we get vitamin D, despite the fact it was it was uh, identified through a a dietary supplement, it, we actually get it through a photosynthetic reaction in the skin. Uh, when it's exposed to ultraviolet V radiation or or the sunlight, um, and and really through the development of of new technologies, we now know exactly how vitamin D gets um, synthesized in the body, how it gets converted to the active active metabolite. So, I mean, it, it's probably a good uh, time at this point to really give you a a background as to what happens in the body when we get vitamin D, because I think it Perfect. I guess it sets up you know anything else we want to discuss. Um, so regardless of whether we get vitamin D from uh, the diet or whether it's produced in the skin, both forms of it are going to get pulled into the circulation. Uh, the first, it's first going to get sent to the liver where it gets converted to 25 hydroxy vitamin D, um, which is also just shortened to 25 OHD. Uh, and it's this metabolite that we routinely measure as a marker of vitamin D status. So all the current guidelines are are based on this metabolite. Um, currently, anything that's below 30 nanomoles per liter is considered to be deficient, and anything less than 50 is suggested to be inadequate. 
and anything above 50 is is uh, sufficient. Um, so that 25-OHD is, is actually an inactive metabolite. It then gets transported to the kidneys uh, and other tissues that can express the appropriate machinery to convert it to the active metabolite, which is 125-dihydroxyvitamin D. Um, and it's this metabolite that can interact with the vitamin D receptor and actually regulate around 3% of all of our genes. Um, you know, and as I said earlier, the, the reason that we know all this cool stuff is really due to new technologies. You know, we can look at uh, multiple systems in the body. We can use uh, omics approaches, which allow us, you know, to take a, uh, an unbiased look at everything that's going on in the body. We can generate, you know, animal models with specific mutations, you know, you name it. So because of the technologies, the, the interest in the area has boomed, you know, and we've got we've got so much more knowledge now. But for me, the fact that we've learned so much more, I actually think now we realize how very little we know about vitamin D. So it's, it's a common super, theme often, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a super cool area for me, um, simply because there's, there's such a, you know, a wide breadth of, of uh, avenues which we can explore. Um yeah, so I, you know, that's that's a, about as brief as a background as I can give on. Oh, that's that's terrific, and definitely, you know, with vitamin D receptors on bone and immune cells, cardiovascular system, obviously skeletal muscle, which kicked a lot of this off. And I'll, yeah. I definitely want to circle back to kind of the testing, because you mentioned the one twenty five hydroxy. But before mm. we go there, maybe just to lay the lens for listeners of, you know, what are some keys that vitamin D vitamin D may be able to do to impact athletic performance? Yeah, I mean. There's a lot of research out there on this right now, and you know I can totally understand when people uh, come to me and you know say they're they're pretty confused about what the literature says around uh, vitamin D and athletic performance. Um, for me, there are a few key areas uh, the vitamin D can can certainly have an effect on that can affect athletic performance both directly and and indirectly. So I guess indirectly is is likely to be through suboptimal immune function. Um, as we know, vitamin D is a potent regulator of both the innate and acquired immune system. So work from uh, Professor Mike Gleason's lab in Loughborough and, and, and also from some other groups, they've shown that athletes and, and military personnel with vitamin D deficiency have um, an increased incidence of upper respiratory tract infections and a longer number of days with uh, those symptoms. Which if you, if you think about that from an athletic performance point of view, that means, you know, athletes are losing days of training and potentially days of competition. Um, I think what's interesting about this area is that um, the amount of circulating 25 OHD seems to be higher than what is considered to be sufficient by the current guidelines um, in order to optimize immune function. So it appears that the breakpoint for a reduction in infection risk is, is actually about 90 nanomoles per liter. So if we, think, if we think back to, you know, what the current guidelines are of, you know, above 50 nanomoles per liter, we're, we're quite a way off there. So, um, you know, that's really an interesting area. And, and certainly Mike Gleason uh, is, is the guy to to go and read up on if, if you're interested in that area. Um, the second key area that really... Is, is of particular interest to me and, and where my research interests lie is, is in skeletal muscle. Um, so we personally have performed uh, quite a few trials on, on vitamin D and, and skeletal muscle. And the one where we've 
we've seen the most interesting effects was on a, a randomized controlled trial in which we took healthy individuals that had low 25 OHD, uh, less than 50 nanomol per litre, um, and we supplemented them with either vitamin D3 or a placebo for six weeks. Now, prior to and, and following that intervention, um, we experimentally induced muscle damage by a high volume of eccentric muscle contractions, and then we monitored the, the recovery of force amongst uh, some other markers of muscle damage. Mm-hmm. Um, and we found a significant improvement in force recovery in the group that were that were supplemented with vitamin D versus the placebo. So, you know, in keeping with this theme of translational physiology, we wanted to try and identify what was actually going on within the muscle that could potentially explain um, that that benefit. So we we took some muscle biopsies from, again, from vitamin D deficient individuals, uh, were able to isolate out muscle precursor cells, and were able to use them in in vitro, in, in Petri dishes, in the lab. Um, to do some extra experiments on them and, and really allows us to to look at this in a little bit more detail. So we, we treated some cells with vitamin D and others without. Uh, we kind of mimicked a sort of a, a muscle damage in the dish and then we looked at how the muscle was able to regenerate itself. Um, so some of the key findings showed us that you know the cells weren't able to to move as quickly to the site of damage, to fuse together, um, and to essentially regenerate that area that was damaged um, with the cells that only had, um, uh, that didn't have vitamin D. So basically vitamin D was able to improve some cellular mechanisms that that are responsible for muscle regeneration. Um, Which, you know, for us is a a really cool finding and and it's something that we, you know, we're trying to follow up and and understand a lot more about at the moment. the final area for me, I guess, where vitamin D could, could certainly have an effect is, is obviously um, with its effects on bone. So bone is obviously the, you know, the classical tissue through which uh, vitamin D seems to have an effect um, because vitamin D is a, is a potent regulator of, of calcium absorption and bone mineralization. So you know, if we think back to that early work from, from Elmer McCollum, you know, that's where we, we started to understand vitamin D and, and bone health. Now, bone is is obviously a, a metabolically active tissue. It can remodel itself in you know in response to different stimuli, um, and research has demonstrated that you know vitamin D may be implicated in some of some aspects of this remodeling process. Um, unfortunately, observational studies kind of they don't really affirm a proportionate susceptibility to bone loss if you've got low vitamin D. Uh, concentrations and we think the reason for that is because um, at least load-bearing exercise is a, is a positive osteogenic stimulus for bone so what that really means is that uh, if athletes are load-bearing they're likely going to have an improvement in their bone health regardless of whether they vit- whether the vitamin D is high or low um, to a certain extent if it's really low we still see uh, some some bone abnormalities um, however, one sort of caveat to that is that obviously there are a lot of athletes that aren't weight bearing. So, for example, jockeys or I guess, you know, the likes of swimmers, guys who are spending a lot of time off their feet and not really doing load bearing exercise. Mm-hmm. We do still see that they have low, low bone mineral density when their vitamin D is low. So, for example, in jockeys, you know, who are falling off the horse, you know, all the time, we really... 
uh, focus on these guys, try and improve their vitamin D because it could certainly lead to an increase in, in fracture risk and um, and bone breaks. So really to, to summarize that, the, the three key areas for me is probably immune function, skeletal muscle, repair and remodeling, and potentially bone health are the ones that have got the most evidence at the moment uh, for me. Yeah, definitely some pretty significant um, consequences if you're a jockey, as you mentioned, and you get kicked off the horse. I mean, if you're, if uh, those, if your status isn't so good, then that's definitely a pretty significant consequence. And and Dan, you know, how much do vitamin D levels vary between groups of non-supplemented athletes? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, generally speaking, if athletes aren't taking supplements or or using sun beds, they have the same risk as everyone else and between each other because. It has very little to do with the diet, but a lot to do with the environment. With that being said, some of the work that came from our lab in, in sort of 2000, I think it was 2013, um, showed quite a large variation actually between cohorts of, of, of elite athletes. So uh, we looked at elite rugby players, uh, soccer players, and, and also jockeys, uh, and we saw a pretty big variation between these guys. And, and our explanation for that really was that there's the, there could be a number of explanations. One, it could be uh, dietary differences between the between the cohorts. Uh, it could be sunlight exposure differences, although it's probably not likely because most of the measurements were made in the winter and all of our guys were based in the UK. So very similar sunlight exposure could be due to clothing. Again, if you, you know, if you're if you're fully clothed or if you're only sort of 50 percent, that's going to have um an impact on how much sunlight your skin sees, um, and also lifestyle as well, predominantly living indoors or training indoors. Um, and I guess really for us, that, that kind of has important ramifications for supplementation because it tells us that we can't really just assume that all athletes in the winter months have the same requirements for vitamin D. Um, so we've tried to kind of help out with that by producing a, a decision flowchart in one of our recent uh, uh, recent reviews in uh, the Journal of Sports Medicine, and uh, you know that kind of helps practitioners and um, you know people working with professional athletes to try and make the right decision of whether they should or they shouldn't be supplementing with uh, with vitamin D. Um, one area that I've that we've been working on, and, and I guess I've not really talked about, or we've we've not really published any data on yet, is that. And we find super interested in, in an area that we're going to follow up is that when we look back through our data and we look at some athletes that have higher muscle mass, we tend to see that those guys also have higher serum 25 OHD levels in the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, despite the fact that all of these guys shouldn't, when we test them, be on any vitamin D or um, using sunbeds, yeah. um, they, they tend to have this higher serum 25 OHD. And you know, that's really brought around this idea that, well, perhaps actually muscle is a storage site for, for 25-OHD. Wow, um, interesting. And, and there is actually some sort of um, more basic evidence that supports that. So uh, there's a paper that's been published which demonstrates actually that the 25-OHD that's bound to its binding protein can be taken up by muscle and actually stored bound to actin for, for a short length of time. Um, now that's not been shown in humans just yet, but it, it really is interesting to think. Okay, if 25-OHD can be taken up by muscle, how long is it? How long can it be stored there for? Um, you know, how is it released again back into the circulation? Um, 
and and what you know what implications does that have for our supplementation strategies you know if we're working with guys who you know maybe in a rugby team where we have some players who are 125 plus kilograms and some who are maybe in the 80s you know does that have an implication for how we approach um supplementation so you know clearly it is a it is quite a complex picture when it comes to um variations in in athlete vitamin d status and you know i I really do think that anyone who's working with large groups of professional athletes it's 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 something that we really have to take into account and hopefully our recent review can sort of maybe help uh, assist with the decision-making process. Looking forward to talking caffeine and resistance training here today. And yeah, of course, likely. of course, many beverages and foods do contain caffeine, but obviously, you know, coffee is sort of far and away the most popular, I believe, second only to water as the most widely consumed beverage. Yeah. Um, and apparently I was reading... About 1.6 billion cups of coffee consumed every single day, which is sort of mind-boggling. So if we jump in here and talk the effects of caffeine on resistance training, can you discuss how caffeine might impact things like maximal strength and muscle endurance? Yeah, yeah, sure. So we we just recently published a review paper on the effects of caffeine in resistance exercise. And I've also published a few original papers prior to this one and basically from the current evidence it seems that caffeine increases both strength and muscular endurance in resistance exercise as well as uh, muscular power so caffeine um, some of the mechanisms by which caffeine can increase uh, performance in resistance exercise seem to predominantly relate to the effects of caffeine on uh, motor unit recruitment so there's actually one really cool paper that examined this topic. Uh, it was published a couple of years ago, and they tested the effect. Uh, they tested a, a motor unit recruitment uh, before the ingestion of caffeine, and after uh, the, inge- the ingestion of caffeine, and it showed that basically the recruitment of motor units is increased by around 10%. Interesting. And, yeah, and that increase in motor unit recruitment is probably uh, the primary reason, the primary mechanism that might explain the effects of caffeine on strength. Now, uh, when we talk about the percent change or the effect of magnitude, magnitude of the effect, it's not uh, quite large. It's uh, it's actually pretty small. Uh, so in our study where we tested the effects of caffeine on upper and lower body strength, the increase in strength was around 3%. Uh, with quite quite a high dose, it was a dose of six milligrams per kilogram. So while caffeine can definitely increase performance in resist in the resistance exercise, the effect uh, magnitude might not be all that high. Yeah, I suppose it depends on the population. Three uh, percent can be a lot, obviously, in the more um, elite and trained individuals. Is there any? Is it similar in terms of the changes in power with the caffeine? Yeah, yeah, in in general, it seems that the effect of caffeine is somewhat greater on power. Um, So the effect of caffeine might be more on increasing contraction velocity than maximal force production. With that being said, there's only a couple of studies that examined power in resistance exercise. So I think there's only four. Um, 
the majority of studies examine the effects of of caffeine on strength and uh, yeah so the the effect might be a bit greater on power and on endurance than on strength in resistance exercise and amongst those when we look at differences between lower body and upper body exercises are there uh, tangible differences there whether it's maximal strength power with with caffeine yeah so uh like historically it has been suggested that the effects of caffeine seem to predominantly manifest in the lower body so that study that i talked about about uh, motor unit recruitment so they examined percentage of motor unit recruitment in the quads and in the elbow flexors and before the ingestion of caffeine uh, the percent of motor unit recruitment in the quads is around 85%. But in the elbow flexors, it's around 97, 98%. So when you ingest caffeine, there's a much uh, more greater uh, area for improvement in the lower body because the percentage of motor, um, percentage of motor unit recruitment uh, in the lower body is not towards, the, uh, towards its maximal values. While in the upper body, it seems that it is. So... There was one meta-analysis published in 2010, and they observed that the effects of caffeine predominantly manifest in the in the lower body, but not in the upper body musculature. Um, in that yeah. study that we that we did uh, a couple of years back, we also tested the effects of caffeine on upper body and lower body strength. We used the uh, back squat exercise and bench press, and there was a significant increase in lower body strength. Uh, and then a the, uh, couple of months back, we actually did a meta-analysis on the effects of caffeine, focusing only on one RM tests. And in that meta-analysis, uh, we actually found the opposite when we pulled all of the studies. So meta-analysis means that we uh, reviewed the evidence and pulled the studies that examined uh, the effects of caffeine on a specific topic. So we looked at one RM strength. And the effects of uh, seem to be greater in the upper body, which is in contrast to the made analysis from 2010. So it's kind of still tricky to say. Um, yeah, I imagine. And, and for yourself, in terms of um, you know, what would your opinion be in terms of what might be happening there between those two conflicting results? And does it depend on you know the individuals and the population whether we're talking sort of untrained individuals versus you know team sport athletes yeah. versus even you know let's say power lifters or something. Yeah, well, yeah uh, my thoughts are that uh, uh, there's not a lot of studies that compare directly both uh, upper and lower body strength tests. And when you kind of, when you pull uh, made analysis that examined, uh, when you pull studies in a made analysis that examined different strength tests, sometimes you can get some unpredictable results. Um, so my thoughts on it are that probably caffeine can increase both upper and lower body strength, but the magnitude of the effect is probably lower for lower, lower body strength. Um, as far as the training st status goes, I'm not, uh, I'm not too convinced that the effects differ between trained and untrained individuals. Uh, it is commonly suggested that the effects of caffeine are predominantly in uh, trained lifters, but there's only one study that, that included both trained and untrained, and they actually found the opposite. So caffeine increased strength in the untrained individuals, but not in the trained individuals. Interesting. So, yeah, yeah, so lots to be parsed out then. So yeah, it's a lot of conflicting findings. So. And what about the rate of perceived exertion? Obviously, in endurance athletes, we see this as a significant benefit. Does that also translate as well with resistance training and caffeine? Yeah, so 
there is pretty good evidence suggesting that the uh, performance enhancing effects of caffeine in aerobic exercise are predominantly due to the effects of caffeine on reducing RPE or rating of perceived exertion. Um, but in, in resistance exercise, I don't honestly think so. We, in our study that we did, we actually observed a, a decrease in RPE, which was coupled with uh, an increase in strength, suggesting that RPE might uh, also contribute to the performance enhancing effects in resistance exercise. But I think predominantly it, uh, the effects of caffeine are on motor unit recruitment in resistance exercise. Um, RPE, reductions in RPE might contribute to the performance enhancing effects, but uh, I, I would say the jury is still out on that one. It's still pretty unclear. Yeah, that's really interesting stuff. And, you know, I previously had Nancy Guest on in uh, season one of the podcast talking about her research in caffeine and endurance athletes. Um, and of course, that, you know, the, the ability to metabolize caffeine, and obviously the main enzyme responsible for caffeine metabolism, cytochrome P450, that CYP182 gene, which accounts for, you know, 95% or so of the caffeine clearance. And she, she found that there was what she called ultra-slow metabolizers that actually had a negative impact of caffeine on their endurance performance. Do you think that's a phenomenon that might exist as well with resistance-trained athletes? Yeah, there's actually one study just recently published. They, they showed a similar effect. But with that being said, uh, they, both, both of these studies used a similar uh, caffeine supplementation protocol. So they administered caffeine 60 minutes prior to exercise. So if, if we have slow metabolizers of caffeine, maybe they still can increase their performance by supplementing with caffeine. But uh, they just might need to inge ingest caffeine like 90 minutes before exercise or two hours before exercise. Uh, and that's an area that still needs to be being investigated, obviously. But uh, I'm, I'm kind of, when, when, when we say that, that there's non-responders to caffeine, I'm kind of skeptical of that because I think everybody can ultimately respond. Uh, only the matter is the optimal pr protocol for the individual. Absolutely, yeah. It is amazing how that individualization and that, that rate of metabolizing caffeine is probably a key part of this whole story. And as you mentioned, the timing of it becomes then important, whether it's 60 minutes, 90 minutes. And yeah. before, before we dive into that, could you talk a little bit as well about the ability of um, you know, caffeine to impact pain perception? Because obviously training intensely elicits a lot of pain. Um, you know, was there any evidence there in your uh, review on resistance exercise? Yeah. So caffeine, when ingested, caffeine binds to the adenosine receptors. Um, so after binding, caffeine can basically blunt uh, pain. And therefore, it's all also very common in uh, pain relief medications. So uh, in resistance exercise, uh, it doesn't seem like that a decrease in pain perception contributes to the performance enhancing effects. Um, there are several studies that examine this, and you see performance increases in resistance exercise in terms of increased strength or increased endurance, and there's no effect on pain perception. In our study, we actually saw a decrease in pain perception, but there was no effect on the improvements in the upper body strength. So the evidence kind of, I don't think that, that it uh, contributes to it, but uh, we, we definitely need more studies on it. And the problem is the ways that we currently measure pain perception. We, we use um, subjective scales, which may mm -hmm. not be 
completely uh, may not be the the best option. I'm not sure what the best option would be, but they're kind of maybe not as accurate as some uh, uh, as some other models. So for sure, and you know the ranges, the dose ranges in this in your review there, three to nine milligrams per kg. Uh, definitely getting up pretty high towards the seven, eight, nine milligrams per kg. Um, what's the potential effects there for for folks if they are going towards that upper end? And is there sort of a sweet spot uh, for caffeine dose that might elicit some of these benefits for resistance training? Yeah, so currently it seems that the doses anywhere in the range from three to nine uh, milligrams are effective. Uh, but we are talking mostly about... Uh, about the uh, capsule form of, ca- of caffeine. Uh, there's also a really nice review published a couple of months back where they summarized the studies that examined alternate forms of caffeine, like uh, caffeinated gum, and those forms are very often ingested in lower doses, like 100, like an absolute dose of uh, 100 milligrams. And some of these studies actually show, not, not in resistance exercise, but they show that uh, Caffeine, even in those alternate forms in lower doses, can be uh, quite powerful. Um, in resistance exercise, there's actually only one such study. It, it's actually an unpublished study. It's a thesis, and they examined uh, caffeinated gel, uh, caffeinated gel, and the dose was 75 milligrams, I think, which is quite quite low. And they saw a really nice increase in, in strength performance. Mm. We, could, we currently kind of lack true dose-response studies to see what the optimal doses are. Most of the studies use like six milligrams. And there's not a lot, a lot of studies that, that use three or four or five different doses to see what the optimal effects are. Uh, there's, there's one study that examined the effects of two and five milligrams of caffeine on strength at only five milligrams was effective, but two was not. And in another study, they examined three, six, and nine milligrams. So, and they examined contraction velocity, meaning they uh, they lifted lower and higher lo- higher loads as fast as possible. And the doses of three and six milligrams were effective for uh, for tra- for training with uh, 25 and 50 percent of RM, I believe. But when they when the load got up to 90 percent of RM, only the highest dose was effective, so nine milligrams. Uh, That's so really it's, interesting. It's, yeah, it's uh, it's amazing yeah. the different effects. And of course, as you start pushing past that six milligrams per kg, you know, you definitely start getting into that zone of um, potentially things like anxiety or insomnia or impacting things that, in the long term, could obviously become problematic. But it's as you mentioned there. I mean, if you're training at certain periods of phases of training or sessions where you are going to ninety percent or more, it seems like there could be some good basis there for for having some sessions with much higher doses is that yeah yeah like like if you're a power lifter before an important competition you 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 might try ingesting such a higher dose but doing it over time i would not recommend uh the the side effects can be pretty pretty strong when you actually do studies and when you see the responses from individuals after they ingest even six milligrams of caffeine the side effects can be be really bad, and there's a, there's actually one study showing that uh, when you ingest caffeine uh, in the evening hours, uh, your sleep quality is uh, hindered. So, like you need th- there needs to be a balance. 
do you want to sure. risk do you want to risk poor sleep for a three percent increase in strength uh, I don't know yeah you got to be really smart about your context and then what what the goals are and really put that into the individual that's in front of you or the athlete definitely hey friends I hope you're enjoying this episode a quick reminder if you want to stay up to date on when each episode of the performance nutrition podcast drops and receive evidence-based insights every month then join the athlete performance nutrition community by signing up to our newsletter head over to athleteperformancenutrition.com and sign up in the big black box all right let's get back to the conversation of course you looked into body composition changes in football players over the course of a season in collegiate players and a four-year career uh, can you walk listeners through that study setup and, and some of the key findings there? Absolutely. Um, so like you mentioned, football is a unique sport. Uh, we've got um, pretty unique demands on the athlete in terms of size and power and mobility. Um, speed obviously is a huge part of the game. So body composition is naturally uh, quite important. You know, there's a huge focus on it in the off season when when, when young players show up on a college campus to play football, one of the first things that the strength staff kind of decides is, are you at a suitable body composition kind of position for what you for what your role is on the team? And if not, what do we have to do? How much muscle do we have to put on? How much total weight? Um, so certainly body composition is important. But, you know, you mentioned you had Greg on to talk periodization. And from for the bodybuilder and the powerlifter, periodization we get very technical about it, but there's a lot of wiggle room. You know, when the sport is lifting, you have a lot of freedom to tailor your your program perfectly to what you're trying to peak at. Absolutely. When it comes to when it comes to football or really any athletic sport, periodization gets a lot more technical because all of a sudden you're in the middle of a season. And so you need to spend a substantial amount of your training hours doing sport specific tasks. And at that point, you have to be very careful about making sure that the weight room stuff and the conditioning stuff is being tailored to perfectly complement that training. You know, basically, you have limited opportunities to maintain muscle, power, strength, uh, because there's so much more time spent on the technical aspects of the sport. So um, with that as kind of the backdrop, one of the things we we like to do with, with my the lab group I was at uh, that that I was with at UNC was track body composition over, you know, longitudinal periods of time to basically see when we look over a season or over a year or over several years is what you're doing in terms of strength and the nutrition staff. Is it actually conducive to uh, what we're trying to do with body composition or at For the sure. very least, are you, are you weathering the challenges of a season? Uh, so for this study, we had the one-year tracking, which involved 57 uh, high-level college football players, and they were measured in March, May, July, and March. Um, and basically, whenever you're working with a sports team, there, there's kind of some give and take of you'd like to measure things as frequently as possible, <laughs> for but, <sure>. but you, <laughs> you kind of just have to take what you can get. Exactly. Um, it, it's a very collaborative thing, so it, it kind of depends on when the team has time for it. And what makes sense for your research questions? It's very there's a lot of give and take. Um, so with the one year tracking, you know, we had 57 athletes. What we found was pretty interesting. Um, there really wasn't much of a weight change from start to end. 
um, not much at all. What we did see was a significant loss of fat and significant increases in lean mass and bone mineral content. Um, and so basically, if you're using DEXA, which is what we used for, for body composition assessment, you, you can actually kind of separate three different um, uh, compartments out and just look at fat tissue, lean soft tissue, and bone mineral content. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so from, from those results within the one year, basically what we can look at is, um, you know, we can go back to the, the, the staff and the coaching, you know, strength and conditioning staff and say, here's kind of how the trends went from time point to time point, which is informative, but also in the aggregate overall, it looks like the programming is effective at, you know, combating some of those challenges, you know, you worry about lean tissue loss during the season as it starts to get harder and harder to really get them into the weight room for the type of training volume you'd, you'd like to get. Uh, so the one year results were quite good. Um, and there, there are some, some studies showing kind of less favorable changes in the one year time frame, And that really comes down to how effectively you are, are managing the, the limited training opportunities you get. Uh, and how well you've periodized within the year. Yeah, it's um, a great insight to be able to to put your finger on exactly what's going on there. And, and in your study, did you find any differences in, in between skill positions and alignment over that period of time? Uh, within the one-year time frame, not really. Um, I mean, you know, the, obviously the mean changes weren't exactly on the dot, but there was no real huge trend that really jumped out. Um, what you see is that absolute changes tend to be a little bit bigger over, I mean, just generally speaking with linemen compared to non-linemen. Um, and that, that's what you asked, right? Linemen versus non-linemen. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's just because they're bigger people. So even if they, you know, if your wide receivers and your linemen each have a 1% loss in, in their fat mass, that's going to be bigger in the linemen in, in absolute terms. Oh, for sure. But, um, you know, they, they really had quite similar trends, relatively speaking. And, and I think that's because, you know, they might tailor training a little bit here and there from, from group to group, but they're still facing the same rigors of, of the training season. They're on the field, similar amounts of time. They're in the weight room, similar amounts of time. So it looked like everybody was pretty much following the same trends, looking at averages. Um, and like you mentioned, we also did a, a kind of four year tracking and obviously getting complete data for, for four entire years is much more challenging. So very small subset of 13 athletes that we had four complete years of, of data and they were just measured every March over that kind of full athletic career. And what we found was again, increases in lean mass, uh, and bone mineral content. And over the four years, they did in fact have an, a significant increase in weight. Um, and that's what you would expect. You know, you, you go onto a college campus to play American football, they're going to pack some some pounds on you. Absolutely. That's kind that's of the, the goal. goal, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, they didn't actually, looking purely at fat mass, they did not have a significant increase in fat mass, which is quite good. Um, I think a lot of times you worry about bringing these guys on and, you know, you need to load them up with a bunch of of lean mass and you, you kind of worry that they're going to be overfed or encouraged to kind of overeat. And that's not really helping. I mean, to some extent, if you're a lineman, you, you really do just need mass. Um, you know, I've, I've talked to several linemen who are like, 
they're kind of always fighting that battle of like, well, we want to gain weight, but do we really want to put on a bunch of fat? But talk to a defensive lineman, playing defensive line at 300 pounds feels a lot different than playing it at 380. I mean, I'm sorry, 280. Yeah, definitely. Um, even if it's not, you know, pure lean mass that you're putting on, it, when you're leaning into really heavy bodies, having a little bit of extra weight helps. But as we'll talk about when it comes to like, after the career, you kind of have a almost like a moral responsibility to make sure that you're not setting these young athletes up for metabolic dysfunction later in life. So when I look at those results and I say, okay, four years, we put on bone content, we put in put on lean mass, we gained weight, but fat gains were not significant. To me, that's a really promising outlook. Um, another promising part to me is that there's a few studies in college football players saying that they really make all their lean mass gains in the first year or two. Um, and our athletes did not follow that trajectory. They made really, I mean, linear is a strong term, but they made incremental improvements all throughout the four year process. Um, cause I, I really hate the idea that, you know, I, I've, I've heard some people pushing this idea that you get a bunch of lean mass gains within your first year or two of, of lifting. And then you're kind of screwed after that. And, I just don't subscribe to that that idea. Eric, this segues into the next piece of research you've done, which is on fat-free mass index. Can you define that term for listeners, and why is this potentially interesting in the assessment of, of strength and power athletes like football players? Yeah, so fat-free mass index is basically like BMI, but if you remove their body fat from the equation. So... It's all of their fat-free mass divided by their height squared. So fat-free mass in kilograms and then height in meters squared. Um, the reason that it's important, we've kind of already touched on this. A football player needs to be big, needs to be strong, uh, but also needs to be fast and powerful. And so we can look at a position and get a general sense of some of their capacity for physical characteristics, right? So we can look at their height and we can look at their weight and we can look at their body fat and kind of triangulate that information generally. You know, I could say, oh, a linebacker is going to be, I don't know, 6'2 and they're going to be about 220 and they're going to be about 16% body fat or something like that. Yeah. But that's a, that's a lot of inputs to work with. And so in, in my opinion, when you, you scale fat-free max to the end of fat-free mass to the individual's frame, essentially, by using their height, you're looking at kind of their capacity for strength and power per the size of their body. And I, I think that is potentially, if, if you want to kind of focus in on a single number that can really give you valuable information on someone's football-related physical capacity, I think fat-free mass index is an imperfect but decent solution for that. You know, basically, we're looking at someone who needs to generate power and usually in the context of moving their body or locomotion. So if we can kind of frame their capacity for power uh, in the context of their body size, that's essentially what we're encapsulating with that. Terrific. And, you know, is there a target that uh, you know, strength coaches or practitioners should be looking for with that uh, fat free mass index? Um. So I can definitely tell you there are different targets for different positions. Um, and, and that's 
probably the most obvious thing I've ever said. But, um, <laughs> you know, you know, what I mean, like what we tried to do with the paper is what we looked at a pretty big sample. I mean, 235 college football players with with DEXA data. Um, that's pretty good. You know, it, it, we're not just saying, hey, pick up some calipers and, and see what's going on. I mean, th that that's quite a nice pretty sample. robust. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what we were trying to do is we, we can't really say what ideal is, but we can say what is common based on that sample. Mm -hmm. um, and so like I'm, I'm looking at some of the values right now, um, like defensive line is 25, a little bit above 25. Offensive line is just a touch under 25.1 versus 25.2. Uh, defensive backs, we're looking at just a touch under 23. So we know that you want to be toward the higher end. Like, you know, usually a lot of natural bodybuilders try to shoot for like 25, mm -hmm. but that's typically at a, a lower body fat. Um, but what we can do is kind of look at um, averages and, and kind of where where these athletes tend to fall plus or minus. And one of the things we do in the, in the paper that we published, um, is we make little box and whisker plots that kind of show the range of like, here's what a linebacker looks like. And here's what a defensive back looks like. Um, so I, I think I, I can't say that there's a single value you want to shoot for, but you know, we had a, a couple defensive linemen that were actually above 30. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd like to tell you to shoot for that, but I don't think a lot of people have that in them. So we, we can kind of show what it looks like in high level, you know, pretty successful college football players and and kind of make some inferences about where where people might want to be shooting. Yeah, I like in the paper how you talk about, you know, the value of determining an upper limit of that fat free mass index and how you know that can help. You know, strength coaches and practitioners as well in terms of how they're going to um, periodize training or, or you know deliver the nutrition can you touch on that a little bit yeah to me that's my favorite thing about the fat-free mass index is using it as kind of what a, what is a realistic upper limit uh, for essentially the question is how much muscle can you pack on a given frame and I, I think a lot of times that could be used uh, potentially as a recruiting tool. So when you're looking at a, you know, maybe a, a slightly undersized player and you're trying to recruit for a college or even at the professional level, trying to look at prospects, if you're like, you know what, the skill set's there and we really believe in this athlete, but we're wondering if we really can pack on the type of weight he's going to need. I think it could be a useful metric in that context. Um, it also alters how you train the individual. So if, if I've got an individual who is basically as high as I can expect them to be realistically with their fat-free mass index, do I really want to bother training in a bunch of hypertrophy-oriented programming for a person who probably doesn't have much capacity for additional growth? Um, I would say your time is probably best served working more on sports-specific power and, and power development in general. Uh, and then certainly that's going to alter the way they eat as well. You know, if there's low likelihood of adding on additional fat-free mass, do certainly the dietitian staff and the the nutritionists don't want to keep saying, yeah, keep keep kind of overfeeding as if we're going to be, you know, fueling some kind of muscle growth. And the way I like to think of this is actually with a real example. Um, 
I doubt that they use this. I'm pretty sure it happened before we actually published this work. So I don't know what went into their decision-making process, but I, I grew up in Ohio and I love Ohio State football. Nice. And they, they brought in uh, a kid from kind of down the street from where I grew up. They brought him in as a safety and he ended his career at Ohio State as a defensive end. Wow. Um, very atypical. So basically they brought him in as a really, really good state level um, strong safety and packed on mass. And it's like, I don't know if we have a safety. I think we have a linebacker now. And then packed Just on enough. Like, I, I think we <laughs> actually incredible. have a defensive lineman now. And so one of my things is w when you're looking at an athlete like that, what kind of a metric can we use to determine if it's feasible to actually say, we, we recruited you as a corner, but we think you should be a safety or we brought you in as a safety and we think you should be a linebacker. I think fat free mass index can be used loosely as, as a guide to determine how much could we realistically hope to pack on to an athlete without just making them excessively fat. Um, so like, you know, that's an extreme example, but it, it's such an incredible example of what a well tailored strength training and nutrition nutrition plan can do for a talented prospect. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. You can find the full video interviews on YouTube at the Performance Nutrition Podcast channel. Finally, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe, all that good stuff. Thank you, and see you next time. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.